Hello and welcome back to Spotlight on Women in Health Ventures, the podcast powered by Thea, a nonprofit dedicated to empowering women as entrepreneurs in healthcare. Today we'll be talking to Sandra Saldana, CEO and founder of Alva Health. Nearly 700,000 Americans suffer an ischemic stroke each year, and though TPA has been approved for over 25 years to treat ischemic strokes, only 5 to 10% of eligible patients receive this therapy due to delays in seeking medical attention. Alva Health is developing a wearable device to help older Americans living with high stroke risk monitor and detect signs of stroke. Dr. Saldana received her PhD in cancer biology from MD Anderson Cancer Center and her MBA from Yale. Thank you, Sandra, so much for joining us today. Very excited to hear more about your background and your journey to starting Alba Health and where Alba Health is going in the future. So I think first like to get a sense of the road that you took that led you to where you are today. So you come from a very business-oriented family with your father being a college business professor. You have a PhD in cancer biology, and now you're CEO and founder of a company focused on stroke monitoring and detection. So how did these elements of your background inform your decision or inspire you to pursue entrepreneurship? Yeah, first of all, thank you so much for having me. This is really exciting for me. I'm super honored to be here. So yeah, I mean, I, as you mentioned, came from a business-oriented family. So my dad's actually now on the commercial lending side of things. But when I was growing up, he was a professor in marketing and business and and also a consultant for small businesses. So I kind of grew up around small businesses and, and you know, going to a lot of these meetings. And I kind of took that with me while I was going through school. You know, I was always interested in science and biology specifically. So you know, I did undergrad at Cornell in bio and then did a PhD in cancer biology. But, you know, throughout all these experiences, I always kind of had this business mentality um, and the way that I looked at everything. And, you know, how can we apply the science to help people and to serve people, you know, um, solve their problems? And so, you know, it, after my PhD, I decided to jump into the business side of things and did some consulting uh, and sales in the med device and and pharmaceutical industry up in Boston. And this like entrepreneurial bug like never went away. So that's what prompted me to go back to get my MBA at Yale School of Management, where I met my two co-founders and we uh, ended up starting Alva Health. Of course. Thank you so much for sharing that story with us. I like to sort of hone in on your interaction within Yale School of Management. And you'd mentioned that you found your two co-founders here in New Haven. So it'd be awesome to hear about the process of, of meeting your co-founders and where did the inspiration for Alva Health come from? So um, I met my two co-founders while I was in the MBA program at Yale. So it was two professors who were at the time had just filed uh, IP around this idea and this technology. And they were looking to connect with a business student to investigate the business potential of, you know, developing something to help stroke patients or help people detect stroke. Now, the the way that I came into this project, you know, my background coming from a cancer biology PhD at MD Anderson, 
my mentality has always been, you know, how do we help patients with a personalized approach? Uh, so MD Anderson is all about personalized medicine. You know, when somebody comes into the hospital, they put a team together to look at that patient as a whole. And then they really, as a team, try to help that patient as an individual. So this idea of personalized medicine is something that really resonated with me. And that's something that can be carried into stroke detection and helping patients with their own data and look at them as an individual and help them um, to detect stroke as it's happening. What would you advise MBA students who might not have as much background in the sciences? Certainly you can venture in healthcare through consulting and, and these types of things, but you know, really being involved in the sciences, I think it's just an entirely different experience. So what would you advise MBA students who are interested in, in potentially taking a role as a CEO of a health company and you know, working from the inspiration of physician scientists? Yeah, so I... I would say don't be afraid to venture into that. I, I think it's at the end of the day, you know, you're working with people. So you have to work with people that you get along with and that you think that you can have a good working relationship with. So I think if you have that as a foundation, I think you can overcome some of the other challenges. But it's also important to, as, as a non-technical founder, to surround yourself with technical experts and, and other people who are going to fill in those gaps that you may not be so familiar with. So I think uh, just being humble and, and acknowledging, you know, what are the areas where I need help and where I need a partner and just being honest about that. And I think that's important. Yeah, that's very true because some of the most successful like CEOs and stuff that I've seen in the biotech industry that is a very scientifically oriented space. They are not afraid to ask questions and admit when they don't know something because that's how you're going to get answers from people. So I agree with that wholeheartedly. For sure. I think the role of humility is very, very important, especially in healthcare when you're working with patients and you need to understand their perspective. So I'm sure all of your work has been informed by a lot of conversations with patients, with social workers, with physicians and just being very open-minded and no one can be an expert at everything. So it, it truly takes a village. I think transitioning a little bit, it would be helpful to learn more about the problem of stroke. We know it's very rampant. We know that you had alluded to the role of TPA that needs to be administered in a certain window of time. But how would you quantify the problem of stroke um, monitoring and detection and sort of take us through the current standard of, of monitoring beyond the clinical exam? Sure. Um, so, so stroke is a huge problem. So almost 800,000 people in the U.S. have a stroke every year. About 90% of those are ischemic strokes, which is results from a blockage in the brain, which prevents blood flow to the brain. And then the other 10% are what's called hemorrhagic strokes, where an aneurysm may burst and then bleed into the brain. So we're focusing on the ischemic type of stroke. So it, it's very common. It's the fifth leading cause of death in the U.S., the top le leading cause of disability. And surprisingly, over 40 million people in the U.S. are at risk of having a stroke because of you know, a number of reasons, high blood pressure, type 2 diabetes, you know, prior strokes, smoking, and 
atrial fibrillation and, and so on. So it's it's a lot of people in the U.S. who are walking around with high risk. And so it's, it's a really big problem. Now, in terms of the problem um, to the healthcare system, so the, the U.S. spends over $46 billion to treat stroke every year. So this includes like medical costs, medicine, um, you know, missed works of, days of work. So, so it's it's a huge problem um, that's currently not being solved. The the way that people monitor for stroke right now is basically just by noticing the symptoms. So there's an acronym that you might be familiar with. Um, that's it was developed by the American Heart Association called FAST. So it stands for facial drooping, arm weakness, speech difficulty, and time to call 911. So essentially, this is a public health campaign that is meant to increase awareness of the symptoms. And and essentially, it's up to the patient to really notice these symptoms and then act quickly and call 911. So, you know, it's not a very efficient way of doing things. It really places all of the burden on the patient who is experiencing symptoms and they may be disabled, they may be alone, or they may, you know, they may be aware of it, but just hesitate to call because they think it, it might go away. So it's a, it's a really big problem. Very helpful. And as far as the device, what does it look like and how does it sort of integrate with patients' daily life? Sure. So currently we're in the prototype stage. So our final product, it's going to look like two kind of lightweight wristbands. Think of like a Livestrong bracelet, you know, that you would wear on each of your wrists. And it contains sensors inside of it that are continuously streaming data to the smartphone and then to the cloud where the data is analyzed uh, continuously and looking for those patterns that I mentioned. And then when those patterns are um, alarming, you know, it, it would trigger a notification to the user, as well as a, their list of emergency contacts, whether that's a family member or a caregiver or a healthcare provider. I mean, I see a sort of a dual potential use case in that if you're monitoring movements, this could easily be repurposed for falls. You know, there might be some false negatives or even false positives. So take us through how you sort of gauge sensitivity and specificity for your technology. Yeah, absolutely. And you're right in that because we're instrumenting patients with sensors, this technology can definitely be used for detecting falls as well. And that's a feature that we're planning to add to the system. The pattern of someone who's falling is very different from someone who's having a stroke. So that's something that can easily be built into the algorithms. And it actually helps us to differentiate whether it's a stroke or a fall. So, um, so that's absolutely something that we can do. And it's something that may be interesting to our patient population as well, because we are dealing with a primarily older population right. that's aging. And so, so fall detection along with stroke are two things that are definitely working hand in hand. For sure. I mean, hip fractures in general are, I hate to say it, but can often be a death sentence in, in that, you know, immobility and you know, similar to stroke when you have these, you know, issues with just getting around after having a stroke. So I sort of see both going hand in hand. Of course, you want to be focused as a company, but thinking about additional use cases is really interesting. So if someone is classified as having a stroke, how does the communication with emergency response and the physician occur? Sort of take us through if, if someone were to have a stroke, they're wearing your device. How would it work? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so so initially we're focusing our service around the patient and their family or their caregivers. So the way that it works is if the system does detect a stroke 
onset, it automatically notifies the user as well as their list of emergency contacts, whether that's a family member, caregiver. And then those people in their network are then instructed to, you know, check in on the patient or call 911 if something is really wrong. And the reason we want to do that initially is because that's the easiest and fastest way for us to get that patient medical attention versus integrating into the EHRs um, and the hospital systems, the way that the system currently works. It's not really set up to take those, you know, constant notifications from different... Like a my chart message will not will not suffice in this case. Yes, exactly. Okay, that sounds great. And how have you, you mentioned that this is in prototype phase. So how have you sort of solicited patient feedback in the design of the device? Yeah, that's a great question. So we actually were a part of this program called NSF i a couple of years ago. It's uh, sponsored by the National Science Foundation. And the focus of this program is around customer discovery. So through this program, we actually went out and interviewed over 100 potential customers for this product and, and really to try to understand what the problem is for stroke patients, for family members, caregivers, for you know, people in the healthcare system, doctors, hospital administrators, even health plans, and basically anyone who interacts with a stroke patient throughout their journey. And that's where we really found out that the majority of the burden for stroke detection, it's really falling on the patient and their family members. And they're also the ones that end up having to deal with the consequences, you know, whether it's needing a job to take care of a family member and, you know, taking them to hospital to rehab appointments and so on. Um, so that's really where the majority of the burden lies. And so that's what really helped us to realize, you know, this is not necessarily like a product for a hospital, but it's, it's something that is really going to make a big difference in patients' lives. So that's where, you know, we started to gather most of our feedback in terms of usability and form factor and, and inputs for the design of this product. And so, you know, things like it has to be comfortable, it has to be easy, it has to be attractive also, like they don't want something that's like clunky and ugly and people still want to look good. <laughs> people still want to, you know, they still want to feel like young and so we were designing our product to really like fit seamlessly into their lives. And we don't want it to be something that makes people feel like sick or like something's wrong with them. So we want it to be seamless and easy to use. Also take away a lot of that burden. So we don't want it to require any medical training or anything of that nature. So, so those are some of the things that we're taking into consideration. Got it. Just as a quick clarification, and, and I'm sorry if I missed this, but so basically with this device, you're just trying to reduce the time to administering TPA, right? And so when a patient has like the stroke-like symptoms and the sensor goes off, it alerts the emergency contacts and those can be family members and it can be the provider. If it alerts the provider, are they then going to like call 911 or is this also going to be linked to 911 as well. Like I'm trying to figure out like how it will reduce the time to like TPA administration. Yeah, sure. So it's actually um, notifying the family member caregiver so that they can call 911. As a medical device manufacturer, like we can't just link a patient to 911 directly because, you know, that adds a lot of burden to the 911 service, which is a public service. So it actually, there needs to be kind of like a layer between 
the medical device and then the the 911 or emergency response system. So it either has to be like a family member or a call center. And that's another kind of like iteration of the service that we're considering as well. And it's something that we may need to end up going with. So there, there's a possibility that we'll have to set up a call center where the device then links into that call center. And then that person is checking in with the patient and then they're triggering a call to 911. Yeah, it'll be very helpful. And I know like there have been various strategies to try to reduce this time to TPA. That's like the golden question. And like in New York, they have these like stroke mobile units. And so like one, like there's a call, then like ambulance, the paramedics will get to the patient that's just like administer it right in the car rather than waiting like 30 plus minutes in, in New York traffic to get to the hospital. There's a lot of different kind of initiatives to help speed up the time from symptom onset to um, treatment. That's one of the ways that it's being done. So mobile stroke units are a big one. We actually have a collaboration in Texas um, with a mobile stroke unit program where we're going to test our devices on those units. But essentially, all of these solutions rely on the patient calling 911 Mm -hmm. in the first place. So if the patient isn't aware of the symptoms or they're not taking quick action, the mobile stroke unit can't get there either. I'm sure there are others in the space that are tackling this issue because it's such a vast issue. You outlined before the number of people that are potentially impacted or at risk for strokes and the healthcare costs. So could you tell us a little bit more about the competitive landscape for your device and how your position relative to those other products? Yeah, sure. So there's a lot of interest in technologies that help speed up the stroke treatment at various stages. I would say the majority of these initiatives are within the healthcare system itself. So you've got AI software that helps to speed up the radiological readings of stroke scans in the hospital setting. And then there's other companies developing different technologies like head-worn kind of visors or different things that are carried on ambulances to help triage those patients to try to understand if it really is a stroke and if that patient needs to go to the stroke center or if, you know, if it's a false alarm. So far, at least from the commercial standpoint, there are no solutions that are available for patients to detect stroke and to quickly get to the emergency room. So what we think is the biggest problem is the fact that when stroke happens, like it's unexpected and then the patient may not be near, you know, near the computer or anything like that. So it, so whatever solution you develop has to be automated. It has to work in the background and it has to be just continuously looking for the signs of stroke. So to our knowledge, this is the only solution that is available or that will be available to patients at home uh, to help them monitor stroke um, when mm-hmm. they, they're outside of the healthcare system. So it's, it's really exciting, but it's also challenging to be first in the category, but we're convinced that this is a high impact solution and it is going to help a lot of people. So it's worth it to go through the challenges. So really exciting. Of course, of course. And we're excited to see where it goes. So when it comes to wearable devices like this, what is the process of obtaining a patent? Our patent was filed by my two co-founders through Yale University. So Essentially, you file what's called the provisional patent first, 
And then you've got about a year to work up that idea and then to show that it has, you know, some legs. And then you file what's called the non-provisional patent a year later. So that process started in 2016 and it's now moving through the different USPTO and then the European Patent Office as well. So it's being kind of in, in the negotiation phases to obtain what's called the final final patent. So what we're doing as a company in order to work on this technology is we have an agreement with the university where we're actually licensing that technology and it allows Alva Health to exclusively work on this product and have access to the technology and then improve on it and then file you know additional patents on top of that original core technology that was filed by the university. Got it. And so the additional patents that you file, would it be like by indication or how does that work? Yeah. So they're just around different aspects of the technology, you know, whether that's the software architecture, the way that you like transmit data for design, there's different aspects of the technology that you can protect to, to kind of like carve out a space around your technology and enable the company to really be able to practice in this field. Got it. And I know you guys are at a prototype stage, but when it comes to obtaining um, continuous feedback from patients in terms of to inform your design, but when it gets time to do more clinical studies to kind of demonstrate what we've been talking about in terms of time to TPA administration and other variables, like how do you go about the, this sort of clinical study of a wearable device like yours? Yeah, sure. So we actually started out with off-the-shelf devices that we purchased from another company because in the beginning, you have this kind of like choice as to like whether you want to build your own wearable or whether you want to build a software that kind of works with other wearables, right? So that's kind of the question we had in the beginning. We didn't know if there was an ability to really detect stroke or to, to create algorithms around stroke detection with wearables in the first place. So that was, you know, what we wanted to do. So we did leverage other existing solutions to kind of like do a proof of concept. So once we proved that actually we were able to create algorithms around this and they're reasonably sensitive and specific, we thought about what are the things that we need in terms of like battery life and form factor and then can we really embed this solution into existing wearables, the way that these ecosystems work? And then what we came to understand is that the existing solutions that are out there actually don't really meet those requirements that we have for to enable continuous stroke detection. So we decided to go ahead and create our own solution. So we partnered with an engineering firm and an industrial design firm to design and develop our own form factor. Very cool. It's amazing how you're able to form collaborations with, you know, engineers and product designers, because again, this is uh, something that's serving patients, but you have to be mindful of whether the patients will actually wear it. And you were alluding to like the aesthetics and even medical fashion picking up. We also wanted to ask you a bit about the business model. So assuming the clinical study goes well, you get the buy-in of patients and providers and hopefully investors, how would you sort of envision selling this product? Is it direct to consumer? Is it through insurance? Take us through your your initial thought process. Yeah, sure. So our initial target for this product is going to be people who are considered to be high risk for stroke. And more specifically, um, the people who are coming out of the hospital 
after a transient ischemic attack or another stroke, they're actually considered to be high risk for another one within the first 90 days of that event. Um, and so that's a population that's kind of like well-defined and you know they're going through the system and they're being diagnosed by a neurologist. So we thought that it's kind of like an easier place to to reach these patients and and get them, you know, instrumented with the wearables at that point in time. And so the way that we're going to reach them is through neurologists at the time that they're being discharged from the hospital. Initially, in the first couple of years after our product is approved by the FDA, we're working to get our product covered by health plans. But if in case that it's not covered by that point, it'll probably be self-paid in the first couple of years. So the way that we're designing the pricing and and the system is so that it's accessible to most patients. So it's going to cost around $150 for the wristbands and then $50 per month for the monitoring solution. So we think that this will enable people to be able to access it if they want to during that high-risk window. And that will also allow us some time to work with health plans and do pilot studies to prove out the benefit of instrumenting patients and helping them to detect stroke and getting them to the hospital quickly. So it'll give us some time to to conduct those economic studies and to really prove out the case to health plans. Right, right. And how do you feel with the pandemic and this emphasis on telemedicine and remote monitoring has on your business model and company as a whole? Yeah, so that's a great question because the pandemic is actually affected the older population tremendously. As you must be familiar with, a lot of these assisted living facilities, they've closed their doors, you know, they're not accepting visitors. A lot of people are also delaying treatment for things like stroke. So actually, my co-founder is a clinician. He noticed that the admissions for stroke actually plummeted during the first few months of the pandemic. So really obvious that people just are afraid to go to the hospital, they're delaying treatment, and this is having terrible effects on stroke patients in general. And so this solution is, I think, perfect for times that we're in right now because it enables us to have monitoring for people who are home, they may be living alone or they may be living in assisted living. You know, they're not around their families maybe and they don't have access to the clinic because they may be avoiding it. And so this solution actually is something that could help us monitor patients remotely and help us serve those people. So so I think that now more than ever, solutions like this one, remote patient monitoring solutions are essential and they're going to help us to address some of those outcomes that are about as a result of COVID. Definitely. I think this is a good segue into thinking about the future of the stroke space and just general innovation for the aging population, which is your primary target patient demographic. So when it comes to the stroke space, it's definitely a continuum in terms of like patient experience, starting from like prevention, to diagnosis, to treatment. And your product is focused more on the detection slash like diagnosis, more detection space. But are there other companies that are targeting other aspects of of this continuum that you're excited about that would perfectly kind of augment your technology? Or are there areas just in general within like this continuum that you think are in need of a more satisfactory solution? Yeah, so 
in the last few years, there's been increasing amounts of attention placed on serving this underserved population, which is, you know, older Americans, the US population is getting older, they're, you know, higher risk for a lot of different conditions. And but historically, there's not a lot of innovation in this space, you've got a huge portion of the population that has over 83% of the wealth in the United States, and they're not being served by technology in the way that other populations are being served. So in terms of stroke specifically, I haven't seen too many solutions targeting stroke detection, but there's some really exciting advances like with Apple, for example, and their latest releases of the Apple Watch that integrated different features such as fall detection and atrial fibrillation detection. And through these different features, they're now kind of opening up the market for the Apple Watch. In the beginning, it was mostly serving younger people and people who are interested in smartwatches and and wearable technologies. But by adding these different features, they're now getting interest from the older population and they're really kind of opening up the market for that population. So I think those are really exciting changes because by doing that, I think older patients are now becoming kind of like more open to new technologies. And they're also now starting to to experience technology in a different way than they hadn't before. And so I think that's really exciting. I would love to see our technology eventually embed into something like an Apple Watch or you know, like a Samsung Watch, for example. But I guess we're where the market is right now, those devices just aren't well suited for continuous monitoring. But I think in the future, there will be a lot of medical features added to these smartwatches that are worn by everyone in the population. So so I think that the future of smartwatches, the future of personal like wearables is really exciting. There's a lot of stuff going on, a lot of features being developed. And I think the market is just overall headed in a positive direction. I'm really excited that we're in this kind of like cross section of wearables and and aging, you know, where I think we we can make a really big impact. Yeah, no, definitely. You bring up an interesting point about the future of wearables, whereas like prior, it was more focused on fitness and the like, but now you're adding, you're layering in these other features that have to do with like monitoring from certain variables. Now you have like the older population accepting it or adopting it. So I think it's a very positive shift. I mean, with the aging population, it's both like from a clinical perspective and from an innovation perspective, they can be often forgotten and underserved for a myriad of reasons. What is your perspective on this? Like, why is this the case? And what are some of the greatest unmet needs for this demographic that you think are opportunities for for innovation and entrepreneurship? Yeah, so historically, a lot of innovation and technologies have been, I guess, the people coming up with innovations are, are doing so to like solve problems for themselves. And a lot of the people coming up with innovations tend to be younger, you know, they might be like, coming out of a university or, you know, out of their research, their PhD research and so on. And so that's my perspective on why I think a lot of the solutions that you see are not necessarily targeting this older population. But I think that as people have parents who are getting older, they're noticing a lot of the challenges that come with age. So I think that you're totally right. You know, this population has been overlooked. What I learned, at least from meeting people through the assisted living, through the studies that we're running, is that 
people are getting older, but they're not necessarily forgetting about aesthetics and technology. Like they're still interested in novel things. They want to try new things. They want to connect. They want new products. They want to solve the problems that they're experiencing. But I guess it's just been overlooked by the technology community. So I think that there's a lot of different ways that we can help these populations with things like what you were talking about earlier, social isolation, connection, even just having fun. You know, how do you have fun when you have limited mobility and when you have a cane or you have a walker? What are some of the activities that you can do to still enjoy like your later years? And of course, healthcare is a really big one as well, you know, access to healthcare, new technologies to solve healthcare problems that affect older populations, transportation and things of that nature. So there's a lot of different areas of aging that have been overlooked that I think can be solved. And I just think of of this space as like kind of like a blank slate. There's very little innovation for so many years. And there's so many different problems that we can solve as innovators. So I think it's a really exciting space to be in. We are sort of rounding out the hour. Sandra, thank you so much for spending time with us. And we really enjoyed discussing your technology with Alva Health and your journey all throughout this process and, you know, catering to a population that has been historically underserved. In closing, we'd like to hear what are your sort of general lessons or takeaways for women who sort of want to follow suit and start a medical device company of their own? And it'd be interesting to hear your thoughts directly towards graduate students, medical students, and MBA students who are interested in in this endeavor. I would say surround yourself with people that have done it. If you've never done it before, um, it's really important to learn from people and and other women um, in particular who have gone through this process. I've really found that to be extremely helpful. You know, I'm always meeting new women innovators in the healthcare space. And I learned so much from them and the challenges that they've come across. And it really gives me confidence to keep going forward, even when you do face a challenge. So it's important to have mentors, to have advisors who have worked in this space and to really look at, you know, what are the areas where you think we could really use some help with and, and find those experts who can help you navigate through the challenges. I would say it's difficult and it's not a two-year kind of project that you embark on. It's it's a long-term endeavor. So be ready for the ups and downs and be ready to be in it for the long haul. It takes a lot longer than you think it's going to take going into it. And then I would say like uh, specifically for scientists and people in medical school, don't be afraid to solve the problems that you come across. It's uh, important to think about the practical side of what you're doing. So think about um, you know, how can what I'm doing help other people outside of this field? Um, and how can I improve healthcare? And I would say, yeah, just don't be afraid to be different from everyone around you. Thank you all for listening. Visit us on Instagram at Thea Healthcare, on Twitter at ThiaHC, and on our website at ThiaHC.org for more content. As always, feel free to reach out via DM or our website's contact form with any questions or comments for us or our guests. 
Special thanks to our amazing audio editors, Ellie Park and Asim Jain. If you're enjoying our content, please consider supporting our podcast by donating at anchor.fm slash thea-hc slash support. Thank you.